We have a special guest preacher, Jerry McFarlane, who will lead us through his sermon and the rest of worship. Well, good morning, family. Good to be with you again. Uh, last time we were here was a few weeks ago, um, and it wasn't for a worship service. It was for a musical, The Man of La Mancha. And I, I find myself, I'm urging myself to just to burst into, to dream the impossible dream. Can I do that? No. <laughs> great production, great opportunity, but it's even greater to be together to worship with this family. Uh, amen, Bob. You have a close connection, even closer still here, but as ministers of the gospel, it's in a sense, it feels like coming home. Uh, it's just a, it's a great place to be, and I praise God for the opportunity to be with you uh, and to share that. So Bev and I are grateful to be able to worship with you here. Uh, I want to look, this is going to be just a one-up sermon uh, coming out of Acts 2. If you have your Bibles, please, I encourage you to go there because we're going to be referring to this brief but familiar section uh, in Acts chapter 2 at verses 42 through the end of the chapter 47, um, <clears throat> and looking at some of the things that we have in common. But I thought before we do that, it might be helpful to look, uh, let's take a 30,000 uh, view of the world right now. Um, there's not a lot in common, is there? <laughs> there's a lot of things that are disconnected rather than connected. It's never been more clear what our differences are, amen? Uh, let's... Let's start with the world in general. Think about it. War. Rumors of war. It seems to be the daily message of, of the world. People, countries are, are opposed to each other. One country has a different view than the other. And might makes right seems to be the way you resolve those problems. Cultures clash over views of religion and land and authority, food, clothing, and the list goes on. Things are dividing even countries. Then look at our own country. Have we ever been more divided? This country. The differences are not just mild expressions, but they're screaming realities. Politics, religion, morality, education. It's becoming increasingly clear what our differences are all around us. But... On a less controversial, more humorous level, look at us here at Third Reform. There are some clear differences, amen? We're not all the same age. Some of us are old, amen? Yeah. Um, the way we dress is clearly different for some of us. And, and I would venture to say our life experiences are pretty different in a lot of ways. I'd also venture to say that there are some other, uh, other differences, whether it's politically or socially or educationally. We're, we're different people, even though we're together. <laughs> There's a lot of differences among us. Well, as we look at this, I want us to see, as I titled this, what do we have in common? Here's kind of a theme or idea I'd like us to be considering as we look at this passage. And it's simply this. Although there are clear differences all around and within us, as professing Christians, we must, we must work hard and consistently to remember what we have in common that makes us different from the rest of the world. You and I have to work hard, don't we, to make sure we know what we have in common so that the world sees 
people are different. <laughs> There's something clearly different about you. So as we do that, I want to look uh, in the backdrop at this text. So if you have your Bibles open, with, please follow along. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear now the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. A familiar but a rich picture here. And just to remind you, this was in a sense the beginning of the New Testament church. Acts uh, 1 and 2 is the beginning of how this thing called the church really happened in that first century. But I also remind you that this church started in the midst of a dark and divided world very similar to what we are in now. And to be a follower of Jesus was to be clearly different. It was not so much in how you disagreed, but in how you lived and how you loved. That was the difference that people saw. These Christians, they were good citizens who lived in a world that was clearly different. Any good citizen is one who has a good knowledge of their kingdom and has personal convictions about living and being loyal in that society. Likewise, good Christians have a good knowledge about their own kingdom. They have convictions based not on the word of men, but based on the word of God. They are loyal to their king and live to please and honor him. So let's look more closely at, at what these convictions are about you and I as professing Christians and principles for us to see how we need to be living in a divided and broken world. So like, uh, like this passage is reflecting, it's coming out of the writings of the Apostle Luke. Luke is the author of this book. And he's giving us a first-hand description. What was that New Testament church really like? Think about it. Luke is not a historian sitting in some ivory tower passing on his research for his PhD about this thing called the church. This guy who was writing the history, Luke, he was there. He saw firsthand literally when Jesus ascended into heaven. He can say, hey, I was there. You can take my word for it. He was there when the Spirit of God literally fell on people and incredible things happened. He was there when Peter preached his first sermon and 3,000 people were converted. 
Was this the kind of historian you'd like, okay, tell me more. You were there. What was that New Testament church like? That's the kind of historian I want to read about and listen to. And now we see in just a few brief verses a clear description of what the church of Jesus Christ will always have, will always have as a result of this work. So I want to look at this passage from three angles. I want to look at first, what is it that the church had in common? What were the common factors that brought this together? The second thing I want to look at is the context. Where was this happening? What was going on with these things that they had in common? Where was that being manifested? And finally, I want to look at what was the effect of of the work of Christ among his people? All these things they had in common, and as they lived life, what impact did that make? I think the New Testament, if you're a professing Christian, you're part of a church, what do we have in common? And what is to be the effect of that? So let's start with that first factor of what is it that the church had in common based on what what Luke was saying here? What makes us different from all other religions and views of life, both corporately as we are here, but privately in your life? What makes us different? What do we have in common? And the first thing you see is right in that opening verse of verse 42. The first thing we see is not their experience. It's the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to not just holding hands and singing hymns. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The word he uses here to describe their approach, that devoted word in the Greek, it's, it's not just, oh, they really liked it. No, there was a strong hunger It means steadfast, strong, to adhere firmly. When you are devoted to something, you don't take it casually, do you? I want to know what this is. I want to give myself. So they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Although there's no longer the office of an apostle, there will always be the teaching of the apostles. And much can be said about this teaching, but at the risk of being too simplistic, let me suggest to you that the basis, the bottom line of the teaching of the apostles is that it was all about Jesus. All about Jesus. The teachings of these New Testament leaders was actually the culmination of all the teachings of the Old Testament. One commentator put it this way, all the writings and the prophecies of the Old Testament would find their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. And he goes on to say that Peter addressed this in his sermon earlier in chapter 2. We saw earlier as Peter was preaching. Peter addresses what was going on. And the first fact that he gives as, is this. Jesus is the Christ. And I know this is not humorous but that's not his last name (laughs) Jesus is the Christ that's a title it's not simply a name it's the title given to Jesus and you see Peter addressing that in verse 21 he says this is the seed of David and in verse 26 this is the anointed one or the Christ so what the apostles were teaching is that this Jesus 
is the promised Messiah who has come to deliver. But Peter would go on to emphasize this Messiah was not only the descended and promised Messiah, he was also the Lord God himself. He is, Peter says, exalted, sits at the right hand of the Father who has given him all authority in heaven and earth. What was to be the foundation of learning that the apostles would pass on in their writings? It was that Jesus was fully God and fully man. What makes you and I different from any other religion? We believe in Jesus Christ that you have confessed in the Apostles' Creed. He is fully God. You see Jesus, you see God. He is fully man. And he is the Messiah who delivers his people. But we see that that was the common foundation of teaching. But what else did they have in common? There were a few other aspects here that Peter or that Luke is highlighting that come out of his writing. So we have the Apostles' Creed, but the second thing he says believers will always have in common is fellowship. Fellowship. I would suggest to you that that phrase has become sadly a hackneyed or a nebulous thing. <laughs> to fellowship of coffee and cookies or donuts. You just kind of stand in a hallway and smile. Now that there's a much deeper understanding biblically of what Luke is trying to get us to see that this church had in common. The Greek word koinonia simply means to share in common. What is mine is yours. What is yours is mine. We are in this together. For us as professing Christians, it should always carry a rich and fresh reminder of our connection to one another as followers of Christ. You know, the essence of fellowship it's not simply an association. It's a mutual commitment. Why do we ask you as a member to stand up here and make a vow to us? Because we need you as much as you need us. We need to be committed together to the common call of Jesus. And there are a lot of aspects to that fellowship. And let me suggest two things that come out of that mutual commitment. One, when you and I are in fellowship, we share a mutual identity with Jesus. Yes, we have different personalities and even opinions, don't we? But what must transcend all of that is our mutual identity in Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way. It's almost when someone said, Paul, who are you? He doesn't pull out a resume about all that he did. He said, you want to know who I am? This is who I am. I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, who are you? Who am I? What do we have in common? I don't live anymore. I'm dead to myself. Jesus Christ lives in me. That's who I am. And that's who I always want to be. But a second factor of that fellowship is not our common identity, 
Brothers and sisters, it's our common calling. Whether you understand it enough or whether you even like it enough, you and I who profess Jesus, we are the body of Christ. People ought to be able to look at the body of Christ and see Jesus. So we have a mutual calling to know Christ and to make him known. That has to be seen in how we care, how we mutually love one another. As the old Christian chorus declares, they'll know we are Christians, what? By our love. That's not a shallow, kind of cute little cheesy statement. That's a profound thing. What is the world looking at and seeing in the body of Christ? That's what was happening in the New Testament church. We'll see later the effect that had. So we see this, this commonness of the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship. But do you see what else Luke is listing here? What these Christians had in common? It was the breaking of of bread, this idea of, of meals, of, of something happening. There are some difference of opinions I have to suggest to you here from commentators. Some commentators see this phrase of breaking of bread as exclusively having the Lord's Supper together, which we'll do in, here, in a few moments. While others saw it as sharing meals together. Like the theologian John Calvin, I, I think it's both. <laughs> I think these believers were having meals in their home, but they also had a regular time of saying, let's come to the table of the Lord to see what we have in common with our crucified Savior. This sacrament was to be the most significant meal they would ever share, but they shared life together. And this was to remind them again and again of their common identity with the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ. When you and I fellowship together at meals, and especially at the table of the Lord, we are one. No Jew or Greek here, just common believers with a common hunger for Christ. I want to know Jesus. I want to grow in him. And I want to live for him. But we see a final aspect here of what they have in common. Not just that that meal but he says they had the commonness of prayer together do you see that where he said they and the prayers that they had together and again i would suggest to you please this is not simply an attempt at wishful thinking to hope that god would hear us and be pleased these believers as one commentator says it they were dealing with regular times of prayer that's why one commentator said, do you see that the definite article that appears here when Luke says what they had in common? They had the breaking of the bread and the prayers. What was happening at that time is that believers would regularly go to the temple to pray for prayer times. Now, that's not some new formality. You remember the story of Daniel in the Old Testament when his opponents want to expose him. And when they were all commanded to bow down to the, the statue of the king, everyone had to bow down to, to that king. Where did they go to find Daniel? They knew where to go because Daniel was having his time of the prayer. Three times a day, Daniel would pray at 
at associated times. This was a significant calling. And it's not a new idea. It's something that, that believers were picking up on. You know, this is for another sermon, but I, it seems that prayer is a perpetual problem in our individual walk as well as our corporate work in the Church of Christ. We're kind of weak at times, aren't we, in prayer, both personally and corporately. Could there be a link between a consistent prayer life, personally and collectively, and and the work of God among us? I remember hearing a story of a legendary uh, Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, in the 19th century. And somebody asked him, why is it that you are so effective, you are so powerful, your church is filled weekly with people, throngs, who want to hear your message? What do you do? How are you so effective? And the legend was that an hour before, half an hour before the service, he took these inquiring people down to the boiler room, flung open the doors, and there were a hundred people praying for the service that was about to take place. It was that important to Spurgeon to say, it's not me. (laughs) It's the people of God praying for the work of God that bring about the power of God. That's for another sermon, amen? We should do that. Um, So these four aspects of what Luke describes as are critical to understanding. So that's what they had in common, but please don't lose sight of the fact that second idea I was mentioning to you is the context. Where was this happening? How was it being worked out? And I think we see that again in verses 46 and a little bit of 47. You see there, he says, they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing to everybody who had a need. And day by day, they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. Now, this is an important thing to see. That This was, yes, they had some formal religious context in the temple, but they went for prayers and but for conversation as well. They had much in common with their fellow Jews, and they wanted to share the good news of the Messiah. But in addition, you see, they went house to house. They were in each other's homes. Their worship of this new king was not limited to religious ritual. It was more personal than ever before. They were now sharing life informally as they ate meals together and met at the Lord's table. There was a a connection, a personalness, a daily living out. As one commentator put it, he said this, They had not only had mutual affection for each other, but they had a great deal of mutual conversation with each other. They weren't just coming together for religion. They wanted to live life together. They were literally walking through life together day after day. But I hope you see a final context that it's implied more than declared is seen in the fact that those believers found favor with all the people. They were living it out in front of this world that was broken and hopeless, looking for answers, and people were seeing there's something about you. You're really nice people. I think we can trust you. I even think we could be like you. What is it about you? The way these early believers lived and loved had a significant impact on the world around them. There was truly something different about them. And I love the description, if you read ahead in two chapters from now, when 
Peter and John are confronted by the religious leaders about what they were doing and why they were declaring this Jesus. And the more they pushed them, the more they saw there was real character in these men. And the way these religious leaders finally said, here's the problem, when we deal with these Peter and John, it's obvious they had been with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to have that description? (laughs) What is it about you? It seems like you hang around with Jesus a lot. It seems like who he is and what he's about is kind of coming out of you. Have you been with him lately? Where'd that come from? And I think that's part of what we need to be seeing here. And it's a good place to pause. What do people see when they look at us individually and perhaps even more importantly as a body? Do they see that you and I have been with Jesus? Or is it just a religious formality that you and I are holding up? Or is it a living savior that people are seeing in our lives? You know, the third and final aspect I was talking to you about is not just what we have in common and and these issues of the context, but it's the effect. Do you see what the effect of this New Testament church was having on people around them? Much can be said about it, but look at this quickly. One One effect is their unity. In verse 44, we saw that clearly, that all they had, all who believed were together and had all things in common. There was a unity, an unspoken commitment to each other that unified them. Yes, they were clearly committed to helping each other, but the key factor is why. Why do I care about you? Why do you care about me? It's got to be because Jesus cared about you. Jesus cared about me. The sacrificial work of Christ is that which unifies us. But it's also interesting, you see the other effect, that non-believers were being converted. Isn't that amazing? When, when God works in the hearts of his people, the reality of Jesus and his love comes shining through. Salvation comes to non-Christians because salvation has come to you and me. Do non-believers see something in you that they are drawn to? There's something different about you. What is it? It doesn't mean that mass conversions occur every time we gather. But friends, you know, one of the most significant ways people come to Jesus is by the way Christians care for one another and live out Jesus in front of them. As many of you know, I've shared that in my own testimony. I came to Christ because of other Christians. (laughs) I wanted to call them hypocrites and blow them off, but there were those who were really with Jesus that I couldn't deny. And I found myself saying, God, I want what they have. I want to be affected. I want the same living Jesus. I don't want to just be religious. I want to know this God the way they do. What a powerful impact that the church of Christ can have on the non-believing world. But that final impact in our text is implied. God is being glorified, isn't he? As Luke says, almost in passing toward the end of this section, he said they were, meaning the believers in the New Testament, they were constantly praising God. They were praising God not merely in their words, but in their very lives. It was second nature to get out of the way. And have Jesus be center stage. 
people just naturally wanted Christ to be lifted up. They would see him. A life of praise does not mean a painless life, but it does mean a life of hope because Jesus paid it all for you and me. Well, with that in mind, how do we conclude a, a sermon like this? You know, there's, this is one of those sermons that I suggest doesn't need a lot of application. Go do this, go do that. You know that. But perhaps it would help to ask a couple questions in conclusion. For example, how goes your union with Jesus Christ? How are you in your walk with Christ? Hear me now, I am not asking, what have you done for Jesus lately? How's your resume? <laughs> no, how are you and Jesus in union, in communion? How's your communion with Christ? I would suggest we need to just look at the cross. You want to know how it is? Look again at the cross and see how much he loves you. But another question that might be similar how goes your union with the body of Christ? How are you feeling about being united here at Third Reform? People of so many different backgrounds and experiences and opinions. How's your union with this body of Christ? Do you feel more alone than connected? I would suggest to you that's not your problem or someone else's problem. That's our problem. If a brother or sister feels left out, disconnected, don't just feel sorry for them. That's your problem. That's our problem. How do we hunger to bring the brothers and sisters in unity together? And I would urge us, for Jesus' sake and for the glory of God, let's be so united to Jesus personally and collectively that the living reality of Jesus comes quietly yet powerfully shining through. And may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you are the Lord God Almighty. That Jesus, you have come not only to seek but to save the lost. And we confess, God, that we don't take that call as seriously as we should, both personally and collectively. But we thank you that if we've been reminded again and again that your love is steadfast, you cover the guilt of our sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Lord, indeed, as we come to this table, we ask that you would, would you renew us, God, by your spirit. You have done it all. You have paid it all. You have given it all to us. So help us to be the church of Christ even this day. And we pray in his precious and holy name. Amen. So as we do prepare to come to this table, I encourage us to turn your hymnals to hymn number 185. Very familiar hymn, but brothers and sisters, sing it with that reality that Jesus paid it all.